story you are about to hear is true. Attention, all true. As I mention all the time, I'm a huge fan of Atari, and I was a huge fan of Atari as a kid. So much so that I denied the presence of other consoles when they first came out, and that included the Nintendo Entertainment System. There was a lot of hype around it in my neighborhood, a lot of kids wanted it, but I was steadfast in my appreciation for Atari, and when the kids in my neighborhood got other consoles, I was able to trade them for their Atari cartridges, so my collection grew, and my appreciation for the Atari grew with it. The NES had been out for maybe a month or two when I had my first real experience playing the system and getting into it at FAO Schwartz in New York City. I mentioned this once before in the Nintendo Missteps podcast that I did earlier. This was really the first time that I got to play, and it was the time that I fell in love with the system. Now, I went home and still enjoyed my Atari, but if you played Atari and then tried Nintendo, and it's day and night, the graphics, the gameplay, it's just a much more engaging system. So I decided at that point that I was going to try to get a Nintendo Entertainment System. As my family will tell you, I'm none too subtle in my <laughs> hints and methods of trying to get something. I'm sort of like Ralphie from Christmas Story. I take an all-out approach, total war, when I want to get something. I remember circling catalogs. I remember cutting out things. I remember talking about news reports. Whenever I would have my mother's ear, I would talk about just how amazing the Nintendo Entertainment System is and how everybody else had one. Well, I had missed the first window at Christmas, and my birthday is not too long after Christmas, so that was pretty much out the window. So I was either aiming for a random gift in the middle of the year, which I wasn't counting on, or the following Christmas. In the meantime, I had to make do with the Nintendos at my friends' houses. My one friend had the Nintendo with the Rob unit, which I always thought was going to be awesome. I thought Rob was the greatest thing in the world because it's a robot. Luckily, I got to play with Rob before I got my Nintendo, and I knew that it was a fairly useless device. So the scope of what I wanted went down. As the year went on, playing at my friend's house meant playing Mario, playing Duck Hunt, playing Bike. Then Christmas started to approach, and I took it up a notch. I was getting a little older at that point, but I made a list for my family and distributed it. I think I even went to the library and made copies on what was new in our town were photocopy machines for everybody, so they all knew exactly what I wanted, what games I wanted, what type of Nintendo I wanted. I wanted not the deluxe set at that point. Christmas rolled around, and I was not disappointed. I got my Nintendo Entertainment System, and with it, I got Legend of Zelda. That I played to no end. Now, the <laughs> weird thing is, at the same time, a new type of store opened in my town, a computer store. Now, I was still very young at this point, and computers were these sort of mythological devices that adults played with, or you saw in movies controlling, you know, the nuclear weapon program. I started hanging out at this computer store as often as I can, and the salespeople were these young guys, and I really took to it. And they told me that there are computers that young kids could use and learn to play on, and they suggested I get a Commodore. I turned on a dime from my Nintendo and desperately wanted a computer. It's as if the heavens had opened up and a choir of angels sang down to me the praises of Commodore. My birthday, which is not very far from 
Christmas came up and lo and behold, my family had chipped in and bought me a Commodore VIC-20. I still played Nintendo, but I gotta admit, I'm a computer person. I like my games with a keyboard. Of course, the Commodore is something we could talk about in another episode. The thing about Nintendo is that it's got the history. Unlike Atari, which went away, the NES continued to manufacture cartridges long after the initial run, and also there was a great secondary market. So throughout my existence, even though the Nintendo passed quickly, the NES, it was always with me. I'm very sure I even brought it to college with me, and it was a big hit. Everyone dug through their closets and started bringing theirs down to college, even though there were much more advanced systems out at the time. Nintendo has been with us since the early 80s, and a new generation console has come out for every generation of child that's come out since then. So in a lot of ways, it's a brand that grew up with us. On today's show, we're going to talk about that original console, the Nintendo Entertainment System, or as it was known in Japan, the Famicom. We're going to talk about its origins, why they created it, how well it did, its jump to America and rising popularity, how it managed to grow after the video game crash, some of the amazing games they made for it, and anything else we can think of. So without further ado, let's start the show. We can't talk about the success of Nintendo, and it's a startling success when you consider what was happening at the time in the United States video game market. In 1983, or sometimes people say 1984, there was a video game crash. The market for American video game home consoles had become saturated. There were at least six or seven choices of consoles that you could buy. There were hundreds and hundreds of games available. Couple that with the rise of so many video game arcades, and people were just burned out on video games. Add to that the lackluster slash blockbuster offerings from Atari, such as E.T. the Extraterrestrial and the infamous port of Pac-Man, and you could see why consumers were starting to get fatigued with video games. Around that time, retailers started losing money, and many of them marked prices down on Atari cartridges by as much as 90%. The video game crash and consumers and retailers' reaction to it is an intriguing, complicated story, but they basically promised that they would never carry video games again. Now, Atari opened up a lot of opportunities for smaller companies to create video games, and one of those game companies was Nintendo, which was a Japanese company. Nintendo had made three very successful games, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. Nintendo was an ambitious little company, and we're taking their profits and we're going to build a console that could be built in Japan, sold to Japanese, and exported to the rest of the world. Now, Nintendo had actually made other systems for home use, very simple systems, most notably the Color TV game system, originally created in 1977. The Color TV game 6 was a game that had six variations of Pong in it. It was followed up in 1978 by the Color TV game 15, which made improvements that would show up in the Famicom later in that First of all, it had 15 games attached to it, but it also had controllers that were on a wire, which made it much easier to play. But they wanted to do this right. 
So they put together a team led by Hiroshi Yamachi and Masayuki Yamura. These guys were veterans of Nintendo's simpler systems, but they were tasked with something bigger. And what they wanted to build was a unit with a 16-bit CPU system that could play different games. And they were hoping that it would actually be like a computer and you would play them on diskettes. They also put the price point at about $75. Now this, of course, was unreasonable. The price would have to go up. So they cut back from the 16-bit CPU to an 8-bit CPU, and instead of using diskettes, they decided that since cartridges had worked so well for other systems, it would be just fine for their new system. Nintendo was really hung up on turning this thing into a computer. They had these great plans to add all sorts of different peripheral devices. They wanted to add a keyboard, so you could do basic programs, a cassette drive. Most of these ideas wouldn't make it to the U.S., but some of them actually did show up in the Japanese version of the NES. They were so committed to this thing being a family computer that in Japan it was released as the Famicom family computer and was released on July 15, 1983. If you've never seen a Famicom, it's really pretty. It's white with red, really looks like a toy, and really draws the eyes, much prettier than the gray system that we got here in the United States. When the Famicom was released, it came out with ports of three very popular Nintendo games, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. Now, people were initially excited about it, but due to problems with the motherboard, there was a massive recall on all the units and a replacement of the motherboard. That initial replacement seemed to iron out all the bugs because very quickly the Famicom went on to become the number one console in Japan, outselling its closest competitor, which was the Sega SG-1000. And by the end of 1984, Nintendo had sold over 2.5 million Famicons in the Japanese market alone. This while the video game crash was going on in America. So with startling success at home, Nintendo turns its sights on the United States and Europe. Nintendo arrived on the shores of America, unsure of how to proceed with the release of the Famicom. They thought that they could get legitimacy by partnering with Atari, and actually entered negotiations with Atari to release the Nintendo Advanced Video System under the Atari banner. Now this would have been an intriguing partnership, but it fell through. You see, at the Consumer Electronics Show in 1983, an unlicensed port of Donkey Kong appeared on the Coleco Atom. This infuriated Atari, who thought that Coleco and Nintendo were in cahoots, and basically killed the deal. So, Nintendo was forced to look for legitimacy in other ways, and at the time, people were thinking that computers were the way to go, and that was the promise of the Atom. They saw that the Atom had the potential for success. For those of you not familiar with the Atom, it was ColecoVision's supposition that people would maybe prefer a computer wrapped around their video game system. And this is exactly what Nintendo had planned for its new system when it came to America. The design for the Nintendo Advanced Video System, or NAVS, as they were calling it, actually would feature a keyboard, a cassette data recorder, wireless infrared joystick controller, special cartridges that it would allow people to program in BASIC, and a infrared wireless gun. Atom was big hype, but a very big failure, and analysts negatively responded to the NAVs. So Nintendo went back to the drawing board, and at the Consumer Electronics Show in 1984, they were unable to procure a distributor for the system. So they went back to the drawing board. Later that year, Nintendo returned with a scaled-down version of the NAVs, which they now renamed the Nintendo Entertainment System. Reaction was fairly warm to this system. 
but Nintendo needed to be very careful. Without Atari as a partner, and without the promise of a computing system, Nintendo needed to develop a new strategy to win over the public. They wanted to make sure that this new system wasn't associated in any way with video game consoles with the past, and so they dropped the word video from the system and instead decided to stress the entertainment aspect of the system. This is just one of the things they hoped would help differentiate them from the past and make the system sellable in a chaotic market. But they didn't stop there. The new system, although it took cartridges, they renamed them packs, which was just a different word for the exact same thing. These were the same cartridges that were distributed in every other system before it. They also hid the cartridge away inside the unit, making it front-loading. And this was cool because it was kind of futuristic, but it also did a subtle psychological thing. It changed the way you looked at the system. You weren't looking at the cartridge going in. Their thinking was, if you couldn't see a video game cartridge, maybe you weren't playing video games. It seems like a real strange idea, but you really can't argue with success. They also took it one step further. And instead of just releasing a system that played video games, which is really all the Nintendo Entertainment System does, they decided to add something that would set it apart from any other console that had been ever created before, Rob. Rob was a plastic robot that connected to the NES and moved as part of an on-screen game. So you had an interactive unit slash toy right on your coffee table or right in front of your television while you were playing video games. And this was something that nobody else had done. And it worked. It convinced decision makers at toy store companies to actually carry the new Nintendo system and sell it. If that wasn't enough of a coup, the company also at the same time hired a very hot company to do the marketing and distributing for the NES. That company was the very hot Worlds of Wonder, who were the makers of Laser Tag and Teddy Ruxpin, which were huge hits at the time. So the system that came out was basically a Famicom, but it had significant differences. The first one being the case, which I've talked about. The Famicom had the toy-like red case, but in America we had the subdued NES gray. The Famicom control controllers were hardwired, and they also had a microphone embedded in them for certain games. The American version, although not as attractive, was technically superior, minus the microphone, which I think was useless. It had the game meta controls embedded right into the controller itself, as opposed to on the console, and it was a 7-pin hot-swappable controller, meaning you could plug and unplug the controller and switch from left to right if you ever needed to. It also meant if your controller breaks, you can just buy a new controller instead of having to send it in to get fixed. There were a bunch of peripherals that were released for the Famicom that never made it to the United States, including Family Basic, which allowed people to code in Basic and actually play games that they wrote right on their Famicom. What was even cooler is that they had a Famicom modem, which actually connected to the Nintendo server and provided content like jokes, Nintendo news, game tips, and the weather in Japan. They actually played around with doing a scratch-off game from the Minnesota Lottery. You would scratch the tickets on your system, and then that would connect to a central server and you'd find out if you won instantly. It's early internet gambling. But due to parents freaking out that their kids might be playing the lottery on a regular basis, despite Nintendo saying that that would be impossible, needless to say, they never finished working on that game. Something that intrigued me as a kid was that, unlike the NES, 
the Famicom actually had no lockout circuitry. So anyone could make a cartridge and play it on their Famicom. I remember talking to people who wanted to buy an import Famicom just so that they could play games that would never show up here in America. Most of those were Japanese imports. Although I'm not sure how a kid from New Jersey who had no understanding of Japanese would figure it out, but a couple of my friends did. They were playing those Japanese games and figuring it out and not knowing any of the meaning of the characters on the screen. I guess that is what you would call a textbook definition of a hardcore gamer. So with this new, rebranded U.S. Famicom all polished up and ready to go, Nintendo released its system into the United States on October 18th, 1985. Probably that Christmas was the year that I played it at FAO Schwartz in New York, which was the test market for the NES. 100,000 units were shipped, and 90,000 of the initial shipment were sold right away. In February of 1986, just a couple of short months later, a nationwide and Canadian release happened. To best monetize their new system, Nintendo created two packages for people who wanted the NES. They created a deluxe set, which retailed for 250 US dollars, and this came packaged with Rob, the Zapper, and two titles, Duck Hunt and Gyromite. And there was also a scaled-down set, which was known as the Action Set. This omitted Rob and included one of the greatest games ever created, Super Mario Brothers. At the same time, to accompany this wide release, Nintendo marketed 18 launch titles. Now pause the podcast and get a piece of paper. Now try to write down how many you can name. Let's see how well you do. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Ten Yard Fight, Clue Clue Land, Baseball, Donkey Kong Jr. Math, Duck Hunt, Golf, Excite Bike, Gyromite, Hogan's Alley, Ice Climber, Kung Fu, Pinball, Mock Rider, Super Mario Brothers, Stack Up, Tennis, Wild Gunman, and Wrecking Crew. How many did you get right? All 18? In a world full of bored geeks, a game would rise. And one podcast would discuss it in excruciating detail. The Retroist presents the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Coming soon to a computer near you. Although Nintendo did really well with the NES in America, they didn't do as well in Europe. And that has to do with planning and the different companies that they used to distribute the system. The NES came to mainland Europe in 1986, and that is every Western European country excluding Italy. The very next year, 1987, Mattel brought it to the UK, Ireland, Australia, Italy, and New Zealand. Now the problem was that by that point, Sega had released its master system, which technically was a better system and had a better penetration of the market already. So although it did sell well in Europe, it never could do as well as the Sega Master System. The only country of those named that NES did outsell the Sega Master System was Australia, but in no way was it as successful in any of those countries as it was in the United States. The NES would dominate the American video game landscape throughout the late 80s. The icing on the cake is that this was an era of growing and lasting franchises for Nintendo. You had 
Mario and Zelda and Metroid all coming out at the same time. Plus, you had the record-breaking Super Mario Bros. 3, which was released in 1988. It would sell over 7 million copies in America and 4 million in Japan, making it the most successful standalone video game in the history of the world. By 1990, the NES had reached a larger user base than Atari did back in 1982 by a long shot. And back home, Nintendo became the most successful corporation in Japan. In the U.S., its two competitors, the Atari 7800 and the Sega Master System, although popular, were buried under Nintendo's hit after hit after hit. In 1988, though, Sega released the 16-bit Sega Mega Drive known in America as the Genesis. This was a 16-bit system. It had technically superior games. Nintendo needed to get going on something new, so they rushed out the door the Super NES. And the Super NES would slowly supplant the NES over time, but the NES would stay popular in the United States up until 1995, and Nintendo would continue to manufacture games for the NES up till then. But in the end, after a decade of production in the United States, the NES was formally discontinued. By the end of that run, they had sold over 60 million NES units throughout the world. Here's a fun bit of trivia for you. The last first-party NES game to roll off the assembly line was Wario's Woods, which was a puzzle game that was released in the U.S. on December 10th, 1994, just in time for Christmas. Of course, not even the discontinuation of the system could stop people from playing their NES, and the secondary market for the system thrived. You could buy used NES games well into the late 90s, and then with the popularization of the internet, ROMs started to appear online, especially in trading sites, and that became a, and the NES is a hotbed of emulation still to this day. You only need to look at the internet and the various items that are NES themes, the t-shirts that have tons of NES controllers on them, to see that the NES crept into the psyche of America and the world and isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Just take a look at the sales on the virtual console of the Wii to see all the classic games that people are clamoring to still buy to this day. I'm sure that Nintendo will go on to make consoles for years to come, and that we probably have not seen their greatest achievements yet. But to me, the Nintendo Entertainment System will always have a special place. It is the first system that stole my heart away from Atari, and I had hours and hours of exciting gameplay and blistered thumbs because of it. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by The Retroist at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. And if you'd like to be my friend, you can drop by Facebook at www.facebook.com slash retroist. If you have an idea for me, email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. You can now download the show right in MP3 format directly from the post about each podcast. And if you got a couple of minutes, why not drop by iTunes and give me a glowing review? I really would appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. And the NES would use a 8-bit processor produced by Rico based on an MOS. Uh. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.